what makes music such an important part of films and filmmaking and an important part of what makes us human. We discuss this and more on this episode of The Overthinkers. Hello, thinking people's thinking people. Welcome to The Overthinkers, home for the creative intellectual and the only cult that wants you to think more, not less. I'm your host, Joseph Holmes, filmmaker, culture critic, pop culture and theology wonk. And with me, as always, is my pleasantly perspicacious co-host. Nathan Clarkson, actor, author, filmmaker, and very amateur singer-songwriter. Ah, that's right. That's right. I thought I'd go with, again, going with theme today. Going with theme, which we, <laughs> which we like. And with us today is a very special guest. He is a composer and orchestrator, author and theological researcher, and award-winning narrator who has composed musical scores for films such as the award-winning After School and the new Christmas film Miracle on Highway 34, directed by our very own Nathan Clarkson, and has had music he's composed played in the Vatican. He has lent his voice to audiobooks such as the Green Ember series and Old Sam series. He is the author of the new book, Sensing God, a meditation on seeing God through our sensory experiences. He is the jovial, the judicious, the jaunty Joel Clarkson. Joel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for being here. I have nothing else to say. It was such an excellent introduction. I just oh. wanted to sort of like, you know, go into the air and sort of. Well, I was sort of like, completely yes, summed up by the, inter, by the uh, yeah, yeah. intro. Wait, it's great. Joel Wait. is now the second, uh, the second of my siblings to be on. So yeah, that's true. Busy siblings. That's true. And not and, the last, most likely. And the third, the third Clarkson. We we definitely have a we have a have a, a Clarkson uh, <laughs> yeah, series being <laughs> being. I know. I was talking the other day with um, my mom, and it's like it just feels like we're all doing a lot of stuff, and people are probably going to get really overwhelmed with how many Clarkson products come out incessantly, <laughs> just because we we are really creative and we don't like being bored, so we just keep on putting things out and doing things. Are you afraid that people will start to be like, oh, I've gotten one Clarkson thing. I've seen them all. Like they're not <laughs> the same. <laughs> yeah, so we have to really work on the image and say, you can't just have one, you have to try every flavor. Yeah, exactly. There's, there, there's a different cover uh, every time, even if it's all the same content, you know, so that's, that's <laughs> yeah, half the fun. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right then. Well, um, so today we are talking about music, film music, and all such things. Um, film music is one of the least talked about aspects of filmmaking, even though music is one of the most popular and ancient art forms in human history. Even in film history, prior to films having voices, they had music, because silent films were often accompanied by orchestras. Today, some film composers are calling to attention to the fact that modern trends in filmmaking are to make film scores invisible and unnoticed to the audience, which has generated discussion about the place and purpose of music in film. Joel Clarkson, as a film composer, what do you think is uniquely important about music and film, and what should it be its role in the filmmaking process and experience, and the importance of music in general? And if it sounds like I'm giving you a blank check to talk about your passions, it's because I am. So knock yourself out. <laughs> Thank you. Well, um, that's a, it's a good question. It's a very big question. Um, and I think that uh, the, the it's both the exciting thing about film music, but also the challenge with it is that uh, it's sort of a... Uh, it's a an art form of for all seasons, uh, hmm. and music on the whole is. I think music is very uh, malleable. It, it's it, this is part of why you see music um, with film at the very beginning is that it 
it plays this this supportive role, you know. And hmm. um, I think that probably the the first place that I would start um, with film music is to say that it's it it has a it's it's valuable for film because of its narrative capacities. Um, hmm. And it's valuable for film because of its unique narrative capacities that don't necessarily have to do with using language. They, they, it sometimes mm. does, but it, it has a melodic vocabulary, as it were, melodic um, articulation and and harmony and counterpoint and these sorts of things, which do, in a certain sense, communicate to us and communicate things about the world to us, but not with words. And so, we, you know, in a certain sense, we can we can have that conversation as almost like a subtext to whatever the text is that's in hmm. front of us. And, and so I think that that's, that's sort of the fundamental um, way in which music is, is first sort of uh, set in film. That's not its only role. Uh, it does, of course, sometimes take on a more prominent uh, narr narratival aspect. Uh, and so it becomes more central. There's a lot of films in which music um, cues you in to certain things. I mean, at the very beginning, you could just sort of, you could start by talking about leitmotif, which is um, a concept that begins with Wagner, or it's 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 really developed heavily mm. by Wagner. Mm. And leitmotif is just basically the idea that you have themes and characters throughout um, a given narrative that will have particular uh, or ideas and characters that will have themes attached to them, musical themes attached to them. And they'll mm. usually be short and something very recognizable, something easy to, to, to sure. attach to and then remember later. Uh, and so you see this happen a lot in, in film music, uh, uh, certainly um, uh, throughout the golden age of cinema, and then a, kind of in a resurgence in the 70s and 80s with John mm. Williams and Jerry Goldsmith. And oh, sure, yeah composers like this who you know you think about star wars you've got all of these amazing um leitmotifs in there um, dum, dum, da, 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 dum, dum. i mean, yeah, actually yeah. anything in john williams you know da, well, you dum. can't do any more than that we'll have to pay for it yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's right pretty much pretty much but you get the idea and so there is this sense in which it starts as subtext it can move into text and then there there is actually a way in which it is actually the text uh, from hmm. time to time in certain hmm. in certain films and you i think of there's a um uh, a, a French film uh, with Juliette Binoche from the '90s called Three Colors um, Blue. It was a yeah. trilogy. Yep. And uh, the, Great film. it's yeah, amazing film. And it centers around. I mean, I won't get deeply into the story, but it's about um, a composer and his wife. And yeah. Um, and there's there's an ongoing dealing with grief in the film. Yep. And mm. the music uh, and a lot of silence plays this point of entering or sort of helping establish us within this narrative and give giving us direction as we're watching yeah. this and trying to yeah music is sort of the medium grief. by which grief is sort of dealt with in the story so it's a very yeah. tangible thing and of course yeah. on the other end of the spectrum you have guardians of the galaxy which is about you know <laughs> music is at the center of the narrative there right right and i mean and that's interesting because of course guardians of the galaxy um brings up a whole other side of things which is our sort of in the latter half of the 20th century, our recognition of popular music and what it what it immediately communicates to us right. about ourselves apart from the film, so that when we right. hear it in the film, we're instantly set into a particular kind of that's, kind of that's mode, an excellent point. Well, I love yeah. what you said, Joel, about um, especially in in music and the the film world that music has articulation power or something mm -hmm. to yeah. that effect, and that a mu music articulates things that which visual and writing cannot. And, yeah. you know, I've seen these videos of um, 
uh, on YouTube where they will take a, a, a classic movie scene or classic movie and yep. they'll remove the music from it. And you yeah. watch this, um, the scene and you go, this is entirely different and it's entirely yeah. blank. And I'm not feeling the emotional resonance I did with the music, helping me understand the emotions I ought to feel here. And then yes. in fact, they will take that very scene and they'll put an entirely different kind of music on and it will change the scene entirely. It'll go from being yeah. a dour, angry fight to a campy, um, pithy conversation. And it's yeah. all because the music informs um, both informs us what to feel, but also articulates um, our emotions through. And I think that's a beautiful thing, especially in film. And like Joseph said earlier, it is interesting how little recognition music gets um, mm. in the film world um, uh, and how powerful it actually is uh, in the art of storytelling, how necessary it is. And I, you know, I'm yeah. a big proponent of video games as everyone who listens to this mm. know, as they are this beautiful <laughs> art form that combines so many different art forms, writing and acting and, and visuals and all these things. And I think about this while I'm playing my video games, the music often as I'm walking through, you know, the, the lands of Skyrim or as I'm exploring, mm -hmm. um, you know, uncharted territories. And I think about the, how the music really, um, indicates and signals to me how I ought to feel in these spaces. So I think music was created by God in this really interesting way that is, like you said, it has explanatory and articulation power in something that writing and visuals don't. It's our emotions. Mm -hmm. it, it literally is the, maybe not literally, but it is um, very much the the articulation of emotion. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. And I think um, that is such an important aspect of storytelling is emotion. I think music only ups and helps those um, yeah. aspects of the art of the art you're creating. I love that. That's a great it way gives to say us, it. it gives us a peek under the, the hood, as it were, like hmm. what's going mm -hmm. on in people's minds and in their hearts. Hmm. And it's interesting. You used you were talking about Skyrim, which is a great example of this, where you hear these incredible. It's, it's a wonderful anthemic score. Uh, and it's got a lot of light motifs in it as well. Um, but, you, you know, you think about in Skyrim uh, in the game, you know, you, you go out on a uh, walking across some vast expanse with mountains, and then you'll hear this wonderful sonic music in the background. And um, it's interesting because I think that film is uh, it, it sets it's spatial in the sense that it sets you within a uh, an enframed area and gives you something yes. to look at, and it directs mm -hmm. your gaze. Mm -hmm. I think that music is spatial as well, but not in that way. It's not hmm. visually spatial; it's orally spatial. It's hmm. it's orally spatial. This is the way that we hear. Um, and it orients us in that sense. Um, it orients the parts of us that are not that that are within us that are not visual. Our emotions, which which come mm. out through our through our bodies and through the world around us, and we and it you know our emotions paint the way that we see the world. And so I think that um, that without music, it's it's very difficult to sort of give that that um, interior context a lot of the time. What's and interesting. <laughs> That's really fascinating and, to me. Yeah. And I'll let Joseph jump here in a minute because I know he has plenty of questions and thoughts. But what's interesting <laughs> as always, you're always. speaking is um, very often music affects us on a subliminal level. Meaning yeah. when you're mm -hmm. watching a movie, you're not thinking about here you have a horn, here you have the strings, here you have a drum. It's yeah. happening and you're not even thinking about the music, but it's affecting you on a level that's not even necessarily yeah. um, totally that you're totally aware of, which makes me think, and this is total theory and, and just pontificating. Um, but maybe music has this here. ability. <laughs> exactly. And maybe music has this ability to affect us on a deeper subconscious level than we might mm. even know. Um, yeah. That 
it, it, it surpasses the mind, it surpasses the conscious. I'm watching this movie, I'm seeing this thing happen and it affects you on this level you don't even know you're being affected on. And it surpasses yeah. the mind, it goes straight to more of the heart, the fire, the emotion part of ourselves. Yeah. I think that's the power that music has. And it's unfortunate, that's why most likely music musicians don't get as much, especially in the film world, um, notice is because very often you don't even realize how powerful the music has been that you experienced because it affected you on yeah. a subconscious level. But at the same time, it's it's kind of a compliment if somebody says, I was really moved by that film. And hmm. then and then you realize later they didn't realize they were listening to music during the part that moved them. Like that's actually quite a compliment yeah. because hmm. when you when you've overstated, I mean it's it's a little bit like, you know, going into a room and being like, Hello, I am here, or something like yeah. that. Everybody's like, God, that's kind of weird. What are you doing? Like <laughs> It's the same thing with music and film. You can, it's the it's the rookie mistake a lot of composers make is they feel like they're supposed to, you know, to begin with, film music is melodic. So much of it is heavily focused hmm. on melody. And what I mean by that is to say that not all music is melodic. A lot of music is just ambient. There's no, you know, actual melody or lyrical nature to it. It's just sort of open-ended and open chords and no, you know, melody implies sort of conversationality again we hear it i mean i don't know if yeah. i think different people experience things differently but it's difficult for me to listen to really heavily melodic music while i'm writing because mm. it feels like somebody's talking to me and yes. I, I can't like yes. listen to a conversation and write at the same time yeah i've and, actually experienced that too yeah yeah well and it's, so it's interesting because it's better for reading because it's more just yeah overall emotion emotion and aura as opposed for to me. someone speaking to you that's really interesting yeah but going to what you said nathan which is that um I think of, uh, there's a, a Scottish composer here, um, James McMillan. He's a, a wonderful composer, he's world famous, does incredible sacred music, concert music. Uh, and he's Catholic and he talks a lot about, um, he talks about how music uh, gets, it, it's both transcendent, but it's enormously imminent. He says it gets into like hmm. the, the crevices of our lives. Hmm. Uh, and it's interesting because music is, we don't see it. You know, it's not like a physical thing. It's not like looking at a screen and being like, yeah. I can see the image over there sure. and yeah. there it is. Or a painting or a sculpture, you can't touch it. Yeah, yeah. But if if you think about it naturally, this is especially true before the digital age, to produce music, you had to use your body in some way, whether you were hmm. drawing a violin wow. string or whether you were breathing um, to you know play a reed instrument or even hmm. to sing. And so even though music is intangible in one sense, it's also profoundly tangible in another sense. And so I think that's another reason that it works so well with film is that it's interpreting both the sort of the unseen for us and the scene. It's helping us get from one to the other and back and forth. I love that. So many things yeah. going through my head right now. There's so much there that's really <laughs> that's really cool. So I'm gonna say say one thing and then ask sort of two questions and you can kind of take it sort of from there. One thing is, yeah. you know, I love what you said about the the um, supporting of narrative and how how you it can make you feel things and experience things at another level than mm -hmm. uh, the acting or the the visuals can. I remember a nerd writer on YouTube did this whole breakdown of the Lord of the Rings films where he said yeah. that you know each of the characters of the Fellowship had their own theme music. So it's the light motif yeah. we're talking about earlier and what yep. that happened was once they came together it became an orchestra where the fellowship had their own orchestra and then when they yeah, broke apart beautiful. you never saw because they never came back yeah. together again you never saw that full orchestra again and yeah. so it was making you feel on an emotional level the coming together and the separation of the tragedy of it and yeah. and so that's an example for our viewers ever uh, listeners how um how that works in a very powerful way that you don't even know is Absolutely. happening while you're yeah. while you're watching it yeah. um i would say but you now you've you've made this an interesting point where uh, we talked about how this this sort of debate about how noticed 
um, uh, music should be in film. And, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering sort of, and you've talked about sort of, it's a compliment of, of it not happening, um, uh, of it, of it, of, of not being noticed because it feels like you okay, you've done something there yeah. that wasn't noticed. And so where you think the, the, the line falls about when music should be noticed versus not noticed. And mm-hmm. before, uh, you answer that one other thing I was just I'm noticing that I, I thought was, and sort of asking your, your thoughts on, you can go in this direction afterwards. Um, is that, cause you brought up, uh, 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 the, uh, Oh, geez, I, I'm going to, people could be so angry with me because I'm going to butcher his name. Uh, the uh, Christoph Kieslowski uh, film. Uh, Kieslowski, yeah. Yes, Blue. And uh, uh, Joseph, Joseph T. Kikasola wrote a book about, about him, The Liminal hmm. Image, where he talked about the, um, the, talked about the connection between that and religious experience and mm-hmm. how films are by nature sort of a, um, an initially non-cognitive medium where they, they yes. we, we experience things through our senses before we think about them. So we first experience things through our senses, yes. we visualize, yes. we see them and we hear them and then yes. we think about them. And if you're to Christopher Nolan film, you think about them a lot, but you still yeah. initially, uh, it's non-cognitive, you sense it. Mm. Whereas, yes. which is the opposite of books because in books, mm-hmm. you have to think about what you're reading and then you translate that into sensory experience. You and do so the that, world building. You do the world building, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But so, but that's the same thing ways with religious experiences, the book argued, because <laughs> the because uh you know, first you see the burning bush, and then God tells you what it means, or his prophet Moses tells you what it means. And then of course yeah. it gets translated into a book, and we said we may experience that first, you know, uh, mm-hmm. thinking way, but that's the first way religious experiences yeah. um uh talk. So anyway, so the first, so the two questions essentially are the where you think music's place is you know, in uh, being noticed versus not noticed and what times it's important to do that. And then, you know, the connection to sort of religious experience. Yeah, this is great, great questions. Uh, And they are connected. And I think the place that I would start is, um, that comes to mind immediately is, uh, I think of John Cage actually, uh, who, when he was setting out to write four minutes and 33 seconds, uh, he he started by um, he was very interested in Hindu spirituality, hmm. a lot of which has to do with um, sort of prayer as entering into a uh, emptiness, as it were, and hmm. uh, sort of the sense of void. And um, he he really was frustrated um, trying to work this idea. It was his piece was originally called Silent Prayer. Uh, that was what the hmm. piece was originally entitled. Every people who don't and, know what's uh, what that was uh, four minutes three three seconds. Yeah, uh, what's, yeah. what's well, that? Well, maybe I should. I, oh, you don't spoil spoilers. Yeah. You'll, you'll yeah. see. You'll show. Okay, cool. Sounds yeah, good. Yeah. So, so his his idea is silent prayer, and what he wanted to do, he wanted to he wanted to write absolute silence in music. He wanted mm. there to be something that was complete because he was he was in this mode of wanting to think about emptying oneself and entering into the sense of void, and he kept on running into this wall over and over and over and over again because he could never get to absolute silence, um, mm. and. Um, Ultimately, he had two or several experiences, a couple of which um, it, it, they're a little bit legend, legendary at this point. Um, no one really <laughs> yeah. knows which ones are true, and which ones are false. <laughs> yeah. But the ones that I've heard is, is that he went to, he was in, I think, Knoxville, and he went to a museum where Robert Rauschenberg's white paintings are portrayed. And the white paintings are exactly what they sound like. They're, this is in the mid 50s. They're just paintings they're just white paint on a canvas. Hmm. But it's really interesting. Rauschenberg was was a kind of a mystical Christian of a sort, um, or he had aspects of that and in playing into his, his sure. mentality. 
And as Cage was, was looking at this, he was realizing something that Rauschenberg was trying to communicate, which is that even on these white canvases, bits and pieces of dust would appear. Hmm. And um, he started to realize that the value of the piece, so, so he has this first experience, and then he has a second experience where he goes to, um, I can't think of what they're called, uh, a silence chamber, uh, anabolic. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah I know what you're yeah. talking about. Don't know what the name is though. Um, yeah. Is this sensory yeah. deprivation? Yeah. Uh, or something, yes. uh, of yes. something of that sort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's and it completely, you know, soundproofed um, right. so that you could get to almost absolute silence. And he's sitting in this chamber, and he hears two noises, and he realizes it's um, it's his heartbeat and his circulatory system. Yeah. And he goes uh, as he's leaving. He he suddenly has this epiphany that. Um, that effectively, uh, the point of silence in, in music is not that you it reveals silence to you or emptiness, but that it reveals plenitude. It reveals mm. uh, a multitude of things within it. And so, four minutes and thirty three seconds. It's it's you know a lot of people find it very humorous, and it's understandable why. But the point of the piece, it, you know, it's first performed for an outdoor audience, and what basically happens is he walks up to a piano, it opens the lid, then he closes it. And then he sits there for four minutes and 33 seconds. But the amazing thing is you start to, to be attuned to bird noise mm. and to mm. the audience sounds. And I think that this is a really important principle when it comes to music and religious experience, because, uh, you know, looking more toward the Christian tradition, I think of Arvo Paert, who a lot of his music, um, it's he's a sacred music composer, and his music is very spare and open. And hmm. if you look at his scores, there's not many notes in them. They're very, very simple, but they go on for a long time, the music does. And when you're listening to it, it doesn't feel empty. It feels very full, but there's something in in this that where, where even though technically speaking, there's emptiness, we and when we are given this sort of scaffolding of music, the sort of space within which to exist and to think and to breathe, things start to become real to us and apparent to hmm. us. And you know, Parrot would say this is because um, Christ, the Logos, is not just an idea. He's obviously became flesh in the incarnation, but hmm. but the whole world is a Logos. The whole world hmm. is a word of God. And mm -hmm. so we're always, if we can attune ourselves to listen and to be aware, there's always this sense of communication in the world. Mm. And I think this is interesting with music because um, I do think that silence plays as an important a part as, as what is actually written in, in music. Uh, I, it's the, it's the, the sea that one sort of goes into and then comes back out of. Sure. And, um, and so when you think about this in terms of film, this is certainly something which I think uh, somebody working with visual arts would speak to, which is that there's a lot of negative space in yeah. film. Yes, but it focused you. It focused. I, I learned this many years ago when you're yep. when you're um, when you're directing. Sometimes the the best way to get the audience to look at what you want them to in the screen mm -hmm. is to use a lot of negative space, which yep. draws yep. all of our eyes away from the negative space to the positive to yes. the object yeah. to whatever it is that the director wants you to look at, which is so, so interesting to me. So same yeah. with music. Absolutely, it is. Absolutely, it is. You're 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 using this openness and this silence to orient people. Partly because when you have silence, people become more attentive. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, we're just we're just inclined to that. You know, um, when it, we we are accustomed to sound, we're accustomed to people talking and things happening. And when there's silence, it's like, what the heck is happening? <laughs> it's you funny, know. Joel. You say that because I 
uh, during um, the past few months, I went from living in New York City, which is, and I love yep. it, which is loud and taxis yep. and cars and people and street vendors. And it, it, it's lively, <laughs> it's beautiful. And then I went from there and I flew to where I am now, to my hometown of Colorado, where I walk out the front door and there's silence. Mm. And both of these things are powerful and both of these accentuate the beauty of both of them. I think that's- Yeah. Well, and I think but, going from that, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, continue. I have a question after this. Okay, great. Well, I was just going to say, going from that, thinking about sort of some of what I talked about in the book, I do talk a little bit about that. But I also, there is a chapter I have in the book, amongst other things, I talk about music and visual arts and food and these sorts of things. I have a chapter on fasting. And mm. um, and I I really wanted to include that because I think that fasting is a key idea to having a healthy sensory life. Mm. And um, there's an Orthodox uh, theologian, Peter Boutineff, who who describes it this way. He says that, Fasting is a dark an intentional darkening of the night so as to brighten the stars. Mm. Oh, and um, beautiful. Yeah. And I, I think that that's that is the role that that silence plays. And that is the role that sort of this it happens in all of our senses, actually. Um, there are moments where we are not able to fully participate in one sense or another. And you even see this with people who lose a sense. Uh, sure. Yeah. Their other mm. senses are heightened. Um there this is you know, there's always this. There's never just void. This is one of the amazing, amazing things is that there's never just emptiness, that there's always this filling um, of those empty spaces with something, hmm, um, something that brings us back to the present moment, maybe something that's good, that's something that helps us reorient ourselves. That's beautiful. I, I, wow. I also, um, that's wonderful. There's a lot to chew on there. If you're listening to this, yeah. go back and listen to this like five times because a lot to pick up there. <laughs> yes. um, but I, I also love how you pointed out just on a cultural level, um, how well, you alluded to it, but I, I'll take it even further, how important um, music is in almost every religion, every religious mm -hmm. expression yeah, yeah, throughout history and throughout the yeah. world, which yeah. makes me think, I mean, you look at the Buddhists, they have uh, they have their own kind of music. You look at um, uh, any uh, uh, Sufism, you look at, at, at um, I don't know, I'm, I'm blanking on all the religion, the world religions, yeah. but there there's is, a few thousand, only a few thousand you're leaving out. Nathan. <laughs> I can't even remember three, but all of them, every single last one of these religious expressions includes music. So right. when they're, when they're approaching uh, the divine or what they believe is the divine, or however their religious setup looks, what you have um, to do this is music very often yeah, in yeah. temples, in places, in holy places, um, yeah. in, in, in mosques, uh, and wherever in churches and cathedrals. And I think there be, the reason for that is ultimately because there is something transcendent that God created yeah. music to do. That there is Absolutely. something we feel that that as a as um, the Irish would say there's a thin place involved in yeah. music that that removes the veil of humanity and heaven just a little yeah. bit that allows us to experience God in a more strong um, and beautiful and visceral way. And I think that's so interesting to see how music has permeated every single religious experience um, yeah. and expression throughout history and in the world. And on that, coming back to film and how it's so um, powerful, even sometimes that we don't even recognize it, uh, even though it can be subliminal or subconscious that a music affects us so powerfully. Knowing that, Joel, knowing how um, how deeply powerful uh, that music can make scene and the story being told on a mm -hmm. screen, when you go to compose something, be that for mm -hmm. a movie or for not, um, what is... And this is just more of a practical question for all the people who, who have never been really been in the mind of a composer. What is kind of the process 
um, mm. you know, as actors, all we ever hear about is what's your process? What's your process? We literally just talked about this <laughs> yeah. on the um, now it's your the, turn, Joel. Yeah, but, <laughs> I, but I don't know composers' process. I yeah. know how actors do method and do the disc, and we see magazines and movies and videos yeah. about it. But what yeah. is a composer's process to go and I'm going to make this a powerful thing to yeah. either enhance the story or maybe yeah. it's a church when you're doing choir? What is your process to creating? That's a great question, Nathan. Yeah. Yeah, this is it's actually not not dissimilar um, between writing sacred music and working on a film because both are dealing with a very set narrative, you know, in, in hmm. sacred music, you're dealing with liturgy, which has a very particular story to tell. And in film, you're also dealing with a particular kind of narrative. Hmm. And um, I, I, you know, with my sacred music, I, I have intentionally tried, especially in the past several years, to let my writing come out of my participation in liturgy and not just as a participant, like a, a congregant, but as a performer and inquires and that sort of thing. And I think that um, the first step in the process of writing film music for me begins with being well-versed in film and hmm. well-versed in the film that I'm watching. Uh, hmm. Because I, it's, again, one of those those things that you can't really, exp you can say it to somebody in, a, in an advanced, you know, a senior year course in a film studies program um, who's studying film music or something, in their undergraduate, you can tell them, listen, you're going to want to write, you know, really exciting, fully <laughs> orchestrated music. And you shouldn't start there. That's not the place you should start. It's, it's funny that that's a lesson you don't learn until you try it and realize that they're right. Like mm. you have to try it at least once. Yeah. And, um, and I think that there is a certain humility that comes this is true of any artist. Every artist yeah. has to have a certain kind of humility before the work of art that they're, that they are, called to produce but there's there's a humility as a film composer knowing that you are not creating a narrative you are you are participating in a narrative you are entering mm. into you've been invited to enter into a narrative it's and, not dissimilar from actors because when we yeah. approach a role we're told immerse yourself in the story and the character see what this means yeah. to him in this scene what does it mean that this is happening um it's so it's it's not so dissimilar to being a, a religious person, which you're kind of no. submitting yourself to a narrative. Yeah, right, right. And I, the I tricky thing, of course, is that, you know, with with a church service, the, the authority that's establishing it is the ancient tradition of a particular denomination. Whereas when you're in a film, it's usually the producer or the director or possibly they each have different a different views <laughs> on what they want the music <laughs> yeah, to be. Totally. So it can be trickier uh, in certain senses. But um, I, I suppose in that sense, of, I, I have recognized the role that um, composers can play as sort of mediators between oh, various people and things. You know, oh, I'm liking this. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. It, it's it's a it's a human it's a human job. You have to be yeah. very human. You have to be aware of the way that humans think and work and and react and interact. But I, so I would say it would have to start with with recognizing that something is already in existence before you even step mm. onto the stage as an artist um, as a film composer. Mm. I think the second step then is okay. So if this is a collaborative work what are the materials, you know, a good fine artist will tell you this, you know, I've got a friend here who's doing fine arts, he's doing a PhD, but that's partly fine arts and, and partly um, theory. And it's wonderful. And he he's very aware of the materials he uses, whether that's wood or clay mm -hmm. or whatever. It's a little bit the same with with writing music. I'm, um, I think of, of each of the aspects of a of an orchestra or not even just an orchestra of any kind of musical production you could make. Those are all different kinds of materials. Is this an oil painting? Is it a, a watercolor? Is it a, is it a sculpture? Maybe it's a sculpture. Maybe it's, you're working with a different mm -hmm. format altogether. You know, not all film runs the same way. And, and so I think 
that's a big question is what kind of materials am I going to use in this film? You know, I've, I've, mm. I've done scores that were for, for orchestra. I've done scores that were, um, guitar <laughs> and, mm. uh, you know, string quartet. I've done scores that were, um, I did a string, a string quartet and soprano voice score. Um, mm. that was really fun. And we, I worked with the director for quite a while working out the, the sort of the particulars of that. Uh, he had a very, 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 kind of set vision for what he was looking for. Sure. But um, but it's interesting because I think even while saying that there's humility, you are also, you change the story as a yeah, film yes, composer. Absolutely. It doesn't stay the same. And when that happens, that means you you are, I think it's it's why it's such a, I, I, I consider it such a, a, a big, it's it's a little bit like a director. As I, as uh, Nathan, you'll, you'll understand this. You have to be both humble before the art and you also have to have a lot of confidence in yourself. Yes, yeah. Yeah. yes, both at the same time. Yeah, yeah you can't Absolutely. be timid. And it's the same That's, with film scoring. And sometimes you got to stick to your guns and, but you can only stick to your guns if you, if it's not, if it's not an ego thing. Yeah, um, yeah. Can't well, be about, well, I just want this because it's mine. You know, yeah. it has to be, I think this really it's does better for the work. work. Yeah. Joel, yeah. can yeah. you, bef before we head into our blesses and curses, um, and Joseph, I'll let you get any last questions in, but I'm interested for everyone listening, you have, because you and I have had obviously millions of conversations about music and movies and yeah. such. Um, but can you think of a couple examples where music was used really creatively in a film? I remember you talking about, yeah. I think it was uh, Inception. I think you were the one who was telling me this. Mm, yeah. um, uh, and where something about clocks and the music was slowed down. I don't know, but can you think of a couple really interesting ways yeah. that music has been used in film? That's a great question. Um, yeah, so Inception is a great example of that. Uh, I'm trying to think of the song. It's not La Vie en Rose, I don't think, which is a classic, beautiful French song um, uh, sung by, it's it's one of, it's an Edith, Edith Piaf song that's that's sung in the film. Okay. And basically this is perhaps, you know, spoilers ahead, alert. Um, but it's, <laughs> you know, you're enter, as you enter into each of these levels of the dream, if I'm remembering correctly, time yep. sort of expands it, yep. uh, out further and further and further. So um, it lasts, it's, you're experiencing time at a much smaller level. In other words, yeah. mm. you experience uh, a century, whereas somebody else, one level behind you has only experienced 10 years or something right. like that. Yeah. So effectively what Zimmer does with the music is he actually takes this, this piece and he expands it out. And he doesn't just sort of like take the actual track, the dig digital track and, and sort of drag it so that it, because that would, it would just sound distorted. It wouldn't actually right. sound very good. He yeah. actually orchestrates this, this expanded out wow. piece and he turns it that's into incredible. a scene. Oh, I love that yeah. stuff. It's really, really good. It's, it's, so that's, a, that's one creative way in which music, even if you don't always realize it's happening, is constantly informing your experience of the film and telling you what, what's happening on this subliminal level. Another film that comes to mind, this is a little bit, this is both, powerful and dangerous. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it works extremely well in this film, but I think of like the tree of life, uh, where, oh, yes. where Zimmer or not Zimmer, where, um, it's actually, <laughs> this is very typical of Malik. He, uh, Terrence Malik, who's the filmmaker who did the tree of life. He makes these beautiful films. He hires composers to come and write a full score for them prior to the film being filmed. It's wow. the played on set for actors to listen to and get into them to the sort of the, the sense of what they're doing. And then it's tossed out <laughs> what? for the final film. Oh, yeah. oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. But I can't not imagine how frustrating that would be to a composer. Oh, I, I, would, you just, I would die. Yeah. It's but just what such a powerful a thing for actors, though. 
Yeah. I mean, honestly, well, as an actor, I can say that would really yeah. I think, inform. I think it's, you know, similar to me. He does that with his actors, too. I mean, you hear the story about <laughs> well, the yeah, Finn yeah. line where it's like Adrian Brody thinks, oh, I'm the star of this movie. And it's like, no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. He, he is a man who is like brutally faithful to his vision of the film, even if yeah. he knows it's going like to cause The problems. brutally faithful part. That's great. Yes. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting because... Um, I mean, you know, what what he ends up doing is he, you know, in The Tree of Life, there is a score by Alexander Duplass that's that's um, still, you know, oh, turned into a soundtrack. Composers. Yeah, yeah, he's wonderful. And um, but the but the music that ends up in the film is actually excerpts from mostly classical music. And mm, so, yeah. mm. for instance, there's um, he he uses a piece from um, uh, it's a, it's a, a 19th century composer named Smetna who writes it's a it's a suite called mauve lost which means my hometown or my homeland mm. and mm. um and the the movement that he quotes from is de moldau which is the the river um and that, he, that, that he's referencing this particular river and uh it's played as um as as this as this child is sort of growing up and going through all these different movements and stuff, and you begin to realize this, oh, this is like the river of life. That's what's happening, mm. and uh, he does this a lot, and it's really it works really really well in Malik. It can go terribly terribly wrong as well because <laughs> when you're like, listen, so. oh yeah, it's like the music is telling you what to feel or think. Yeah, uh, you know, yep. it can be done extremely badly. Malik is, mm. I think, it works well because the music is telling you that. But at the same time, the music is telling you that there are these interspersed moments where there's like leaves in the tree, and it's he's a semiotic. So the word semiotic meaning there's lots and lots of different signs that are present in the film sure. in any given moment. Yeah. And so music is just one sign operating in a given moment. So you it have a lot, a, sign, of, a lot but... of different signs to work with. And so that gives you room to sort of to ask those questions and, and go back and forth between the different signs. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So, yes, I also just briefly before yeah. we before we, we wrap up, I want to because, you know, you know, one of uh, our audience is is made up of people who are who like to think about these things, but also are, are artists who want to go on and, and do many of these things. Yeah. And so yeah. for people who want to go on and either be a composer in film or want mm -hmm. to be um, a composer of sacred music or some mm -hmm. other, and what would you suggest at both practical steps in terms of becoming a better artist in that way, but also mm -hmm. breaking into and doing well in, in those uh, institutions? What would uh, be some, some, some quick advice that you could give? That's yeah, a hard question to say quickly, um, to answer quickly, but I'll start with Do your this. best, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the first thing I'd say is to know how to write music, you have to know music. And hmm. you need, I think any good composer, this is, I, I had to do this. Everybody I know who is, who's an excellent composer, the same thing. Go and start listening to a lot of Bach, a lot of Mozart, mm -hmm. and don't just listen to it, um, you know, I'm I'm sort of presuming with this answer that that somebody has some basic knowledge of how to read a score or how to read music, mm -hmm. and if they do, then get the score and yeah. start looking and saying um, what what's happening here melodically, mm -hmm. what's happening here harmonically, and what's happening here mm -hmm. uh, uh, contrapuntally with with the counterpoint. Mm -hmm. If you don't know those terms, right there. It is. It is. Yeah. It is quite a word, and it's it's a big one. That's hard. It's hard to understand, even for composers. Like you know it when you see it, but it's hard to explain yeah. it. And totally. and I'd say if those terms are not familiar to you, uh, get get any number of wonderful books on tonal harmony and start making this. It's all of this is very technical advice, but that's where I would start. Yeah. No. I, 
I would start by, by getting these ideas, but I would become, you know, the, the, the way that I learned how to write music was, um, it would like for serious music was I started by, um, I had a, a wonderful professor who it actually is what got me to do composition rather than something else in, in music school. I was, I was wanting to study a number of different things. I thought about performance and I thought about, um, kind of doing musical theater. And I eventually settled on composition because there was this class and uh, one of the people, I was working a part-time job at, at one of the school offices at the time. And somebody's like, oh, you have to take tonal harmony. Oh, you're gonna hate that. I hated it. I just wanted to get through it. And I went in there and I took it. And basically what, what he has you do is he gives you Bach chorales and he explains what's happening wow. contrapuntally. And then he says, okay, now you write a, you write a chorale in the style of Bach. Wow. Now you write a fugue in the style of Bach. Wow. And, uh, I fell in love with that. And I think I would say if you want to be a good a good composer, you have to fall in love with the basics of, mm. not, it's not basic. I mean, what Bach wrote was not remotely basic. The foundations. The foundations. The foundations. Yeah. That's a great word for it. It is the foundation of, of tonal harmony. You, you can't write, you can't break the rules until you know them. And those are the yeah. rules. It starts with and Bach. By the way, you know, in by the way, Joel won't say this about himself, but I will because I'm his brother and I can brag on him. Um, <laughs> Joel, uh, I don't know if this is mentioned in the beginning. Joel went to Berkeley School of Music, which is an incredibly prestigious music school in the Northeast. And at his audition, he knew how to read very little music. Am I am I correct, Joel? You are definitely correct about that. And you have to pretty much read music when you yep. um, <laughs> yes. go to Berkeley. And yeah. he didn't. Yeah. And so Joel and Joel, I don't know what you call this town, but since we've been very little, <laughs> if Joel hears a song, uh, we listen to Les Mis and he could immediately play it on piano. He could transpose it up, transpose it down. Wow. So Joel carries all this, all this musical knowledge in his mind. So basically Joel sits down at the piano and plays from memory a piece that gets him into Berkeley. And fast forward <laughs> years later, Joel graduates summa cum laude of Berkeley. So kids wow. out there, if you don't, <laughs> if you ever feel like, oh, I don't have enough knowledge about this, I'm not as, I can't read music like this person or that person, but you really do feel that you have a gift for this, Joel's story should encourage you because um, absolutely, uh, if yeah. you have the talent, uh, there absolutely is a way. But as yeah. Joel will tell you, it will take a lot of work and dedication. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's the, the, the second answer. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. And um, I, I, I still remember I got I took my tests when I first got there, sort of entry entry tests to see which class levels I would take um, in my first year. And I scored into the first level for everything, basically intro to everything that in the most intro to intro that you could possibly take except <laughs> for ear training. And um, there you go. Okay. The hilarious thing was that the ear training professor he could see that I understood intrinsically what I was hearing, but I didn't know any of the terminology. It's like, how do you not know the terminology? Like, I don't know. Yeah. But this That's is the thing. Music, there's, there's a lot of skills in music. Some people are excellent orchestrators, which means you're, you're working with a lot of instruments. Some people are excellent composers. There's yeah. a lot of skills that you can apply. And that would be part of my advice to the second question that you asked, um, Joseph, which would be, you know, um, there's sort of two answers. To, there's two levels to this answer. The first is, um, some people go into composition and they don't end up actually becoming composers. They, mm. they find amazing careers as programmers or mm. conductors. There's a lot you can do. It's a very mm. particular art. Uh, it's very difficult to get into. Uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult to maintain a career in it. And, mm. um, and even the top composers will tell you that, uh, even the ones who are making actual money, um, many composers, even ones you would know 
worked a second job for years because they could not afford to live purely as a composer. It sounds just like acting. <laughs> so make sure are you saying so make sure this is something both that you really do want to do and can dedicate yourself to and two you actually really have a natural skill for are you saying this yeah way? i think those are really important questions to ask and i think a second question to ask is to say is it even if i have these skills is it really necessary to go um is you know can do i want to do i want a career in which i rise to the top which is what everybody wants when they first start out i want to you know astronomically go to the very top and be the you know most amazing composer ever lived or do i want to faithfully sort of be where i i know so many guys um guys and gals who who were with me at berkeley uh and we all went out to la together we started you know doing yeah, our music yeah. after we graduated from berkeley and um a couple of them have stayed most of us haven't We've yeah. we've mm. uh, gone other places. It's not to say that we didn't have success there. Uh, some people didn't, and they just couldn't maintain it. But we started to realize there's when you accept that you don't have to have an astronomical career, you yeah. can do something that's faithful to the community that you came from, yeah. from the stewardships that are in your life, to the, to the spiritual calling that you have on your life. Those yeah. don't necessarily you could you could still have an amazing musical career and never go to L.A., New York, or London yeah. or Chicago. Um, that's not to say that that's not a, an amazing path to take, but, um, God has so many different yeah. ways he can use your talent, passion that's right. and skill. That's right. That's right. That's awesome. I mean, look, look at the, the, I'm just going to give a shout out to every church choir across, uh, the yeah. church choir leader across the world who week after week after week arranges things, composes <sighs> things, works with people and brings encouragement, um, yeah. to their own congregation. That and, is and a beautiful yeah. calling. And, and that's, that's where I'm happy. happy. Yeah. And that's because, yeah. you know, yeah. we all, because we all know the names of the people at the top, we can often yeah. get into the things where that's the only kind of thing you can do that matters. Yeah. But that's yeah. not, you know, that they're, you know, that's being not, Christian here for months, that's not the way God's kingdom works. It depends and, on what yes. you define yeah. what matters. You yeah, know, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think some of my happiest memories are working with small church choirs and yeah. us suddenly having these moments where something emerges and, and, it, we may be the only ones who ever know about that, but yeah. that moment was was infinitely precious to us and to God. And God was there. Uh, yes. Yeah. Transcendence yeah. and Thank imminent. you so much. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. This is so much yeah. fun. I'm so glad yeah. we got to talk music. So um, we, it's been a pleasure. Oh, please, yeah. please, please explain our next session. Yes. Okay. Brother. So um, <laughs> usually we we tell our our uh, our, um, our guests about this ahead of time, but I we forgot. forgot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, we okay. have a segment at the end of our program every episode called Blesses and Curses, where we will okay. take some piece of art that we will recommend, and so we bless it, or we say, this is terrible, and we curse it. And so okay. our our guests or you are can do invited, but not required, to do one or both of those with us. So we will follow our today, own swords. I thought today we should, we should bless slash curse something to do with either our favorite soundtracks, our favorite sure. operas, something to do with music and story combined, because that's, that, that's basically yeah, that's the whole group, mm. is music and story combined. So I yeah, have, a, I have a few ready to go. Uh, really Joel, if you'd go. like to join, you can either go first or you can watch us uh, and get the hang of it and go last. 
Yeah, give me give me the give me the rhythm. I think I've got the idea. Okay. I've got some ideas, but I'll I'll percolate. All right, cool, fantastic. All right, so go ahead, Nathan. Do you have a bunch a bunch together? Not a not a bunch. Uh, now my mind's gonna uh, blank, and I. That's okay, fine. I'll go first. That's fine. I'll go okay, first. Okay, you, you go first. Yeah. Yes, yes, please. So so I will because we've already gone through like many that I've said like blue, like you brought up, where it's where it's yep. like that's a thing where it's like okay, the music is a character in the story, and you can see it combining with film. And I think just I mean I think that's the film that's the best at sort of talking about how music helps me deal with grief and stuff like that and mm -hmm. help humans deal with grief yeah. i think that that's, that's a beautiful thing we also have gone through lord of the rings we've talked about i've talked about guardians of the galaxy well i will say another thing i really liked and this is again very pop culture one but i really <laughs> appreciated baby driver not because right, okay. uh, the, the edgar wright film not because it you know, like i mean it does another film that does like a lot of soundtracks but yeah. they 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 filmed it in such a way that they had the music in mind first so they wanted the editing like the cuts to come at the right point so it felt like a music yeah. video sometimes and so i like <laughs> that sort of um that symbiotic relationship between the music and the visuals to say you can think about the vi the music coming after the visuals but you can also think of the visuals coming after the music and they can work together and that was one of those yeah. movies that helped me show me that you could do that in a way that was was beautiful so i really i like that film for that reason um i will say sort of on the flip side of that and again these are just films that i've noticed where this has happened <laughs> you could probably think of a lot better examples than i could but i'll say the cursing and this is just an easy thing to curse we say a suicide squad and the reason <laughs> is for that is because they were very clearly trying to do what Guardians of the Galaxy did, which was having music, having soundtrack that you noticed that added spirit to the story, but it didn't actually feel like it was correctly combined with visuals on display. Interesting. So it didn't complement them. It didn't contrast with them. It was just like, okay, the visuals were there and the music was there. And it's really weird because I could tell that that was wrong with it. And, and, and that also, again, just as an example, that taught me, okay, there really is something to how music and visuals complement each other in yeah. that way, or, or either by contrast or by invisible sort of um, complement to each other. So those were, those would be two examples that I would use. That's great. Okay, I will go. Um, I'm going to go really, really cliche, but I'm going to go back because I have do it. So, I mean, nostalgic memories with this soundtrack, and it was the first soundtrack that I actually bought and I put on, and I would um, just relive the story because it's, the soundtrack so powerful. And we have actually already um, talked about the soundtrack, but the Lord of the Rings soundtrack mm -hmm. still holds a special, a special place in my heart. And that every time I listen to each one of those songs, I'm immediately rushed in my mind to Middle. Earth, to the hobbits, mm. to the elves, to mm. the to yeah. the battles, to the great wondrous views and, and spectacular events happening. And so I just think that Howard Shore did such a phenomenal and, and just beautiful job yeah. um, on uh, on Lord of the Rings. And I think that is just an absolutely amazing soundtrack. Um, there's so many others because we alluded to video games that have great ones, but I would be remiss if I wouldn't bring up, now that we're talking about both story and music and how they combine so well. I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up um, uh, the first opera that I was brought to because this really is a medium in which story and music opera, is combined yeah. like yeah. so powerfully and originally. Yes, yeah. And the one of my very favorite operas that I've ever seen, I saw it at the Metropolitan um, Opera House in New York City was La Traviata. And, mm. Um, mm. and it was just, it's just so powerful to see the story unfold while you're listening to this absolutely gorgeous composed music and the intricacies. And we've talked about so many of the different things today about how the characters have their own themes. And, but La Traviata 
was just this really unique experience that I had um, that actually a friend of the show, uh, Lou, took me to uh, see. Ah. And I'm so glad he did. Um, but it was such a, such a powerful combination of story, music, and mm. seamless as well. And I just absolutely love them. And as for, for Curse, oh, this is going to be really hard. I don't know if I have a curse. I'm going to be like, I don't know, one of the, you know, the wow. animated. So unlike thing, you. Maybe so un- high school musical, but even that's pretty fun. Like, <laughs> even that one, it works. Like what they're trying yeah. to do, it works. You're so red. I actually love high school musical. I don't know. That's, <laughs> yes. that's going to go on the blessed list. You don't, too. Have, written. You don't have to. I don't have, have a curse. You don't have week. to have a curse. You know, well, this is maybe yeah. one for the record books, folks. Yeah. So, <laughs> Joel. So, Joel, do you have a bless and or slash curse that you want to do or not? Well, I'll, I, I think I'll go, I'll just take Nathan's cue and, and sort of That's sidestep fine. around having to curse anything because <laughs> one should not say, don't bring your negativity in here. <laughs> well, yeah. one should not ill, speak ill of their, of their yeah. peers. Um, but, oops. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we do it all the time. It's fine. No, go ahead. Go ahead. So what would you bless? Uh, well, I think, you know, it's funny going, this is going back to, to Zimmer, which is funny because Zimmer is known in some sense. And if I were to curse anything, this, it would not be his music particularly would be the, it would be the genre of music, which bothers me, which is it sounds orchestral, but if you were to actually get a live orchestra to play it, it would require like 15 horns and about 550, uh, you know, string players. It's not real. It's too big. It's too, the, the sound is over, overdone. And interesting, I, interesting. I'm not a big fan of that. Um, which Zimmer sometimes does that. That's, that's part of uh, his style. A lot of people, he does it fairly well, um, but he but also don't. Yeah, <laughs> most people don't. Uh, but Zimmer also really, really, really understands how to use an orchestra, and not just an orchestra. He understands how to use a variety of instruments extremely well. I mean, he he does this incredibly well with the Thin Red Line, actually, um, which he worked mm. with a, a few other musicians on that as well. Um, it's just a beautiful score, and I especially think of the score for Interstellar because you yes, know. Yes, thank you. Well, it's I've seen a few interviews with him where he talks through it, and it's he's just so thoughtful about how he approaches the score. He he recognizes that this is a film that's about time and space and about how those things yes. are affected yeah. and how they affect us. And so he he intrinsically I think understood that you couldn't just have a film where you um where you had, you know, cues, uh, the, what we call a cue is a piece of music to a particular scene. You couldn't just have the cues sort of like match the, the drama, you know, mm-hmm. um, it, the, the old term for this is Mickey Mousing, where somebody, you know, gets bopped on the head and, and a trombone oh, gotcha. or, yeah, yeah, yeah. or something like that, you know. Um, so he, he, there's no Mickey Mousing. There's nothing even approaching that remotely. There's, there's a lot of openness because the yeah. music, mm-hmm. again, for him, he's, he understands the relationship of music to time. Yeah. Um, and it is, it is a time bound form of art. And so he uses this to alter our perception and experience of time in the film. The, there's Amazing. this openness. He also uses the organ uh, as an instrument because even though this is, it's got all these sort of very spacey sounds. Yeah. He recognizes that the organ is an, is an instrument that breathes. And he wants constantly to remind us, even though this is space drama, that this is about humans. This is about the humanness uh, in the midst of the cold, you know, dark, uh, endlessness of the universe. And wow. so it's an amazing, wow. amazing score. And he, he's, I, I, really, I, I really admire his work on that score. Well, that's a that's a great blast and a great great one to end on. Yeah. Um, but so very very quickly, do you have uh, where can people reach you, Joel, if they want to reach you, if they want you know for for whatever reason, yeah. or and what's what do you have to plug? You want to plug in a last. <laughs> where last can few people minutes? buy your book and any pieces of music they can listen to? Yes. 
Yeah, great. Well, you can listen to my music anywhere that music is sold or streamed online, um, Spotify or uh, iTunes or wherever wherever you would you would most be happy to find it. Um, and I do have my Midwinter Carols albums, which are available right now uh, if you're looking for some holiday cheer. I'm also plugging my my new book, Sensing God: Experiencing the Divine in Nature, Food, Music, and Beauty. It's coming out January twelfth. Um, it's about my experience as a composer and about how I've I've observed the relationship between our senses and faith. And um, mm. it's available anywhere you could buy uh, books or audiobooks online. So, and website and, and social media. JoelClarkson.com uh, and Facebook.com forward slash Joel Clarkson. Or if you want me on Instagram, it's at Joel.i.Clarkson. Perfect. Very cool. And yeah. I will plug us really quickly. If you want to get in touch with the Overthinkers, go to the overthinkersjournal.com. You can find out more about us uh, and the podcast. You can read some great articles we have coming out, some reviews, all sorts of great stuff. So head to the overthinkersjournal.com. We also have a fantastic group on Facebook that's filled with hundreds of people talking about all these big fun issues that all of you like. And that's the Overthinkers group. It's a private group on Facebook. We would love to have you. Please drop by there. If you want to get in touch with me, find me on any of the socials. Uh, just search my name, Nathan Clarkson or visit my website at nathanclarkson.me. Joseph, how can people find you and get us out of here? I'm on the socials. I'm also on josephholmstudios.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, audience. And remember, as always, if it's worth thinking about, it's worth overthinking about. Mm -hmm.